As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, we need to talk about the UK. <laughs> yeah, we definitely do. You know, the last couple of weeks, of course, have been consumed by the volatility in the pound and the guilt market. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually good that we waited a few days. I would, maybe it would have been fun to like do one right away. But there's so much confusion that I actually think for learning something, it kind of helps to avoid it a few days. That's my excuse. <laughs> well, I'm going to start this conversation with a massive caveat, which is we are recording yes. this on October 3rd. Things can change in the um, couple days that it takes us to get this out. And already things have changed quite a bit. So, you know, the week before we recorded this, we saw massive movements in the UK market. So we saw five-year gilts at like 4.7%, which was the highest since 2008. We saw an even bigger move in longer dated gilts. I think the 20-year was at almost 5%. It's now back below 4%. The pound reached a record low against the dollar. All of this was after the UK unveiled a mini budget that featured a bunch of tax cuts that were expected to balloon the public deficit at a time of inflationary pressure in the UK, Joe. I'm just going to make that point. (laughs) But even then, you know, in, in the one week since all of that happened, we now have the UK Prime Minister, Liz Truss, coming out and basically doing a U-turn on one big component of the mini-budget, which was the tax cuts. Uh, And so we're seeing some relief in the market, but there's still this big question over what exactly just happened. Right. And so it really, I mean, the story kind of started on September 23rd when those tax cuts were announced. It really started accelerating in the middle of the following week. The uh, Bank of England was forced to essentially enter the market. And when you have these big moves in government bonds, there's always this debate, and you've written about it for years in other contexts. That's like, how much is, quote, fundamental and how much is technical? Mm -hmm. How much does it have to do with market structure versus some sort of like meaningful signal about the path of expected inflation or the Bank of England's policy rates. And at times, there is a deviation. And it seemed at least at one point last week 
that there was a pretty big deviation between something like fundamental versus the sort of like technical driven market that may have been causing a run of sorts in at least one corner of the market. Right. So we are going to be getting into this technicals versus fundamentals yes. question with really the perfect the guest. perfect guest <laughs> we're going to be speaking to toby nangle he is an economic and markets commentator who worked in asset management for 25 years formerly the head of global asset allocation for columbia threadneedle also a previous odd lots guest and someone who is quite philosophical at times over money and what markets but also apparently us. can get technical too oh, Philosoph totally. combine the philosophy with the technical which is a rare combination. Yes. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Toby, thank you so much for coming on Oddbots. Thanks for having me. So maybe a basic question to start off with, but how remarkable were the events mm. of the previous week or so in your mind? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, for the gilt market, there's nothing like that in my career. And I was looking back using Bank of England data, and you can't really find something like it for the part, well, since 1978 on the daily data that, that they have there. To have uh, the short gilt market completely reprice the Bank of England rate path in the way it did, and then also the long end kind of go from this big bear flattening into this huge bear steepening as you had liquidation trades and a, and a run dynamic unfold with the Bank of England then having to intervene to start buying bonds when it's trying to do QT. I mean, it does nothing like it. It's really an extraordinary <laughs> episode. We need to uh, talk to Richard Silla, who, you know, history of interest rates going back to like 2000 oh, years. That was one of our first episodes. <laughs> yeah. to, to find something comparable, it sounds like it really was wild. And all someone has to do is look up a chart of like 10 year guilt or anything. And you just see these multi standard deviation moves that are supposed to happen like one every 100,000 years happening a few days. But before we even get to like what was really driving last week, I'm curious, like in the weeks prior to this, it appears we've been seeing this deterioration of market liquidity, pretty big sell-off in government bond markets around the world, strains starting to emerge with so much uh, tightening from central banks. Like Going prior to September 23rd, the day of the mini budget, what were conditions like? What was trading like in your view in uh, government bonds? So, I mean, you're quite right. It's in an environment of rising bond yields around the world, driven really by by the Fed, but also what's going on in the ECB and what's anticipated to happen yeah. uh, in the UK. From what I understand, I mean, liquidity hasn't been you know amazingly good, but there was nothing that I heard that was pointing to hmm. you know a complete collapse or, or anything like that. I can see Joe is setting up his uh, his argument for later. No, but... he just uh, <laughs> it turned out everything was fine. I have no argument anymore. <laughs> okay. Okay, so the Bank of England stepped in, which provoked a whole bunch of commentary about things like fiscal dominance and the accepted explanation or narrative for why they stepped in now is because something was going on with pensions. And basically we were getting this sort of like self-fulfilling cycle of Yields going up, pensions having to sell stuff off, and then yields go up more. Can you walk us through exactly what the issue was there? Yeah, sure. So in the UK market, the asset management market, the biggest segment by by far is something called liability-driven investment, or LDI. And to understand that, you, you need to kind of rewind probably about 25 years. There were these moves in the wake of this guy called Robert Maxwell, who's probably best known today in the North American audience for being Jelaine Maxwell's father. He, oh, dear. He, yeah. So uh, he he ran a media empire, uh, the Mirror Group. And before he fell off his yacht and drowned near the Canary Islands, 
uh, he'd uh, fraudulently taken hundreds of millions of pounds from the Merrick Group pension scheme, leaving those pensioners basically you know, without a pension. Uh, so it's a huge scandal, caused the bankruptcy of that media empire and a big bailout of the Mirror Pension Scheme. So then you kind of bring in this minimum funding requirement for UK pensions. At the same time, accountancy standards are changing. You have this thing called FRS 17, which goes on FRS 102 in, this, in the UK, or International Accounting Standard, IAS 19, for, for global, which kind of says, do you know what? A pension is sort of like a deferred piece of payment for an employee. Right. It's, like a, it's like a long series of zeros, right? A lot, I mean, as in long zero coupon bonds. So we should probably value them like long zeros. So we get a bunch of actuaries to work these things out and then discount them back using bond yields. So suddenly, you know, you had financial statements that were full of fluctuating pension fund mismatches of assets and liabilities. And at the same time, you had this regulatory pressure to say, you know, you probably don't want to have your pension fund hugely underfunded. You can invest in anything you want, but if you've got a big funding deficit, then you've got to present a recovery plan, which might mean over that period you can pay no dividends, you can't do M&A, we might say you can't change people on your board, all these kind of things that firms don't want to do. And so firms go, well, how do we deal with this? And number one, they, they kind of shut down their pension schemes for new entrants. And number two, they look to better uh, match the assets and the liabilities their liabilities looking bond-like. So this is kind of like the, the, the deep history of it. Now, what's this got to do with derivatives and last week, right? Yeah. Well, pretty much almost every pension fund couldn't quite afford to match their assets and their liabilities. So what they do instead is they, they, they have a growth portfolio, which is kind of low volatility. This, this should be cash over time. And then they've got a matching portfolio, and that might be long-dated gilts. Now, the liabilities look a lot like long-dated gilts insofar as a long-dated, about 25-year duration instruments, right? Right. Uh, but they might only have like 25% in the matching assets and 75% in low volatility growth assets. So what they do is they put an overlay over the rest of it using swaps or doing kind of repo on that, on that matching portfolio to, to, to generate leverage. And the leverage varies a lot. Like, you know, it would be up to like sort of four, 4.2 times for the larger schemes. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Walk us through the mechanics, actually. Yeah. What happens, setting aside the craziness of last week, what happens mathematically for the pensions when rates go up, as mm. they have been this year? 
Okay, okay, yeah. So if you have a pension fund, it's got assets, which yeah. will be financial securities and other stuff, and it will have liabilities. So let's say at the beginning of the year, you're a pension fund, and your assets are 100, and your liabilities are 100. Right. Long-dated bond yields rise, you know, a lot. Let's say they rise 100 basis points in your and your and your uh, liability got duration 25. So now your liabilities are only 75 in present value terms. Hmm. Now your assets, they would have maybe fallen a bit because growth hasn't been fantastic. Right. But also on the on the liability side, those gilts have been worth less, and then the swap overlay is worth less. So what mathematically will have been happening during the year is that pretty much every month they'll probably be re- rebalancing so that they get back to being fully hedged and they don't have any kind of crazy so, stuff going on. So just to be clear, the value of the assets has, in a, in a rising rate period, the value of the assets has fallen. But if it's orderly, it's okay because by the accounting standards, the total value of the obligations has fallen as well. Absolutely. I okay. mean, we think of pensions as investors – but what they're really trying to do is they're trying to solve their problem. And their problem is that they don't want to leave their beneficiaries with an unsecure outcome, right? Right. So that means that they don't go around going, oh, how do I juice a little bit more out of this or that? They're thinking, how can I get my funding ratio into a better place? And if they've got their funding ratio in a great place, then they don't really care what yields are doing. So this is like, you know, it's fine. LDI works fine in low yield environment. It works fine in high yield environment. It doesn't work fine if you move from a low-yielding environment to a high-yielding environment super, super quickly. Mm. And maybe we should have a look at the mechanics of that. Well, so this was going to be my next question. What exactly happens in that scenario when you get a sharp move or yields move very quickly? And when you have that type of volatility, is it a problem because of the optics related to the pension fund? You know, no one wants to say that they're underfunded and then have a bunch of press written about that or be restricted in what they can do going forward. Or is it a problem in terms of technical stuff that they have to do, like stump up more collateral to cover some of those swaps that you just described? Okay, it's it's the second one. But also, importantly, and a thing which I haven't said yet far, it's quite important, is that they tend to actually be underhedged. So rising yields actually help their funding ratios. So that that kind of hypothetical scheme at the beginning of the year, which had 100 assets uh, and 100 uh, liabilities, now has 75 liabilities. It might actually have like 80 80 assets rather Hmm. than 75. And so it's actually in a much, much better funding ratio than it was before. Hmm. There's this big windfall gain that's come through, even though the assets have fallen, right? It's winning, if you like. Uh, So from the optics, the optics are good. But then there can be the mechanics. And like really annoyingly, there are kind of three different ways, uh, at least, uh, which they kind of implement. But let's just focus on, let's focus on like two max. Okay. okay? <laughs> so one of which is that they they implement directly. So they have that matching pool of assets like gilts and then the growth pool with like a swap overlay or, or repo on, on the matching assets. Now they've effectively got geared long data gilts. And when gilt prices fall a lot very quickly, that's going to make the collateral worthless. Also, the PL on the derivative overlay will be sharply into negative. So you're going to have to put up more collateral and the collateral's worth less. Um, and, and, and so that's going to be a problem. There's going to be liquidity situation there. Uh, it's not a funding solvency or funding ratio issue, but there's a liquidity problem there. Mm. 
So that's that's one route. The second route is something which I, I think a lot more schemes have had problems with, which is they, they're not big enough to have ISDAs in place with their counterparties and then mm. having like swaps going in place. So what they do is they go to a uh, an asset manager that has a solutions arm and the, and the asset manager says, you know, I'll tell you what, we'll take your £100 and we'll put £75 in this growth portfolio and we'll put £25 in this pooled leverage matching fund, which has all the leverage within it and there's nothing outside that, along with like 100 other pension schemes. Right. Now, if you as a pension scheme with your £100, you've got liquidity to make sure that you can put in more collateral if you need to because, you know, your, your, your funding ratio is improving. This is great. And so you're all set up fantastically. But maybe some of those other schemes, they don't have liquidity. Maybe they're invested in private credit or infrastructure or other long-term types of things which don't have great liquidity. Now, if the asset manager says, okay, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got a recapitalization event, so you need to transfer more funds in, then they're unable to do anything about it. And so they, their hedge just starts to fall away, even if the whole structure within those pool funds is maintained. The asset manager yeah. sometimes might even kind of go, do you know what? Like, you know, we're not going to get recapitalization for most of these. We might just decide to delever them ourselves. And that's what you saw. Hmm. I, I think one of the announcements over the weekend come out from a large asset manager. Man, I, I just have like a million questions, but I'll start. And I, just to sort of recap what you're saying, you know, sometimes in markets, sometimes I'm skeptical of it, but sometimes in markets, people make a distinction between a liquidity crisis and a solvency crisis. And so just to be clear, what you described is sort of, seems like a fairly clear example of what should be categorized as a liquidity crisis. Because in some cases, maybe the move in rates improved the overall solvency and created a gap between the value of the assets today and the obligations, but the mechanics of it, and you just, you know, there were several different avenues. This really sounds like liquidity was the key issue here. That's absolutely right, Joe. And moreover, the only route for liquidity for some of these was actually selling long-dated gilts or unwinding long-dated right. swaps, which which kind of then then boils down to like you know this the Bank of England when they intervened, they weren't doing it to bail out pension schemes. It might actually, I think, I think actually genuinely, it will have disadvantaged large numbers of pension schemes materially by their actions. Right. Hmm. It, Tracy, you know, I'm thinking, it feels like this is actually a common theme this year, and I'm thinking like some of the commodity volatility that oh, we yeah. saw earlier in the year, where you have these commodity producers that are actually benefiting from a sort of solvency basis by the fact that commodities were surging, but due to the funding costs of their hedges, were at risk of going bankrupt despite favorable commodity. Levels. Right. And also just the pro-cyclicality yeah. of margin calls, which is something we also right. saw in the commodities market. Okay. So on that note, Toby, you just mentioned the BOE coming in. What exactly did they do first off and and is it QE or not and why does it matter <laughs> and then secondly what impact has that had on the pension fund so you mentioned that it might actually have been uh, negative for them in terms of a funding perspective but it would have broken the liquidity margin called doom loop that you just described yeah that's that's right so the bank of england they they saw that this doom loop was in place and that you don't know where that's going to lead, right? That could that could undermine the entire financial system. So they they intervened with an announcement that they would do daily auctions of up to five billion pounds each 
in long dated securities. And they did their first auction. And I think it was like just over a billion was, was, was offered. But the announcement just collapsed long yields by 100 basis points. I mean, a huge move. I mean, if you've got 25 year duration on this stuff, that's a 25% price jump just on the announcement, which is just phenomenal. So, so that's what they're technically doing. Is that QE? Um, I think that technically you could talk about it as balance sheet enlargement, but I think it's, it can only be understood as a lender of last resort or rather market maker of last resort function that it's stepping in to do. It's protecting the financial system. It's not trying to reverse QT in any way. And you know, I, I think actually it was you know, they, they executed it and the results are probably way beyond their expectations. <laughs> and then the second question was about like, what was the impact on pension funds? Well, mm. so, some some of these these pension funds were being cleared out of their hedges, whether uh, through their choice or through their managers' choices, up when long dated yields were above five percent. And so, if you think of that, you know that fund that's feeling really great because its its assets have fallen by twenty percent year to date, but its liabilities are down twenty five percent year to date, and you have like the assets and liabilities going up and down in this roller coaster together. Well, the assets just fell out when the game unledged. And the liabilities rose back up hugely after the Bank of England intervention. And so that windfall gain, which might have come from rising yields because they're a little bit underhedged, I don't know the impact like system, uh, systemically, and I don't think anyone knows the impact systemically yet as to what the hit's been for them. Hopefully it's small. I think in a macroeconomic terms it'll be small, but it'll be hugely painful for a, for a number of schemes. So I'm thinking back to in the US in uh, and I guess elsewhere but in the US in spring 2020 the onset of the uh, pandemic and there was a similar situation with uh, leveraged hedge funds that armed cash uh, treasuries versus futures and the Fed had to step in and restore calm to the market. And then, you know, the people have talked about the idea of like a standing repo facility such that at any given time you can just get liquidity for what within any given system should be the safest, most liquid asset. Would something like that in the UK had it is, – is there anything equivalent to that in place or would something like that be useful such that the central bank doesn't have to make ad hoc decisions about when to step in but – allow players to at any time get central bank liquidity for their guilts? So I don't think that there was, I mean, I, I could be wrong, so I, I'm going to caveat that. Uh, but I, I don't think that there was a problem about getting liquidity for your guilts. I don't think mm. that people were wondering, you know, how do I, how do I get uh, finance for this? It's more that owing to the structure of their, their leverage, the value of their guilts had, had reduced such that, you know, they just didn't have enough collateral. I mean, right. consultants will be talking, you know, I, I was speaking to a CIO of, a, of an investment consultant for a piece I read in, in July setting up this whole, yeah. uh, you know, concern about LDI. And he told me, listen, one of my clients had uh, 1.5 billion pounds of excess collateral when guilt yields were down at the, at the lows during the pandemic. They've now got zero and they need to get another billion pound collateral call to wow. come through. So they're selling things. That was in June, right? That was the effect of what had happened through then. So you had, let's say that 25, which was gilts, you might have only needed 10 to put in that pot for collateral. And that then 15 could have been excess collateral. Then, you know, as, as yields rise, so your excess collateral shrinks down. And then you need to replenish it. You need to rebalance. And these things can happen. You know, they it can, it can cause a little bit of strains on the system, but they can happen over months, but they can't happen over 48 hours. 
So speaking of collateral calls, which is basically a synonym for forced deleveraging, I know we we talked about the sort of doom loop of, you know, yields going up. And so pension funds have to sell more gilts and then that forces yields to go up more, particularly at the long end. But we've also seen some chatter about other assets being sold to satisfy these margin requirements. What have you seen there? I've seen talk of credit, you know, specifically some ETFs, given that they're more liquid than underlying cash bonds. But also I've, I've seen people talk about the impact going as far as the Australian mortgage market last week. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw Australian RMBS go on bid in private credit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's very on offer. I, I'd say that the vast majority of large pension schemes, which are in the UK market large, I mean, LDI, uh, liability driven investment covers around, I mean, covered at the last count, which will be smaller now, about one and a half trillion pounds, but that would be like out of, you know, close to two trillion pounds worth of defined benefit pensions. So these are the kind of magnitudes of numbers. Now, the vast majority of them, would have come through this and feel, wow, our strategy survived. You know, we didn't get into forced deleveraging. This is fantastic. And they'll feel really great about that. And I, I think that's good. But then they'll look at their asset allocation and they just go, whose asset allocation is this? You know, this doesn't look like my asset allocation because they, it was all pulled so out of kilter hmm. by the changes that, that have occurred, not in the market values of the of the additional things, but rather you know, the, the bond portion has, has, has shifted around. The portion allocated to a liquids will be much higher than they'd hmm. probably had in their <clears throat> policy. And so there'll be this process of how do you get back to where you thought you were? Uh, and that's going to be kind of the the, ne- you know, the order of business for the next few months, I think. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can we back up? We mentioned you had your, your role as head of asset allocation at Columbia Threadneedle. Can you just talk a little bit more for the, you know, Tracy and I have known you for years. We've had you on the podcast Smart guy on details, smart guy on big philosophical questions about the definition of money, but maybe for people who are listening to you for the first time, can you describe what you did, but also like, what is the sort of normal state of the guilt market? Who is trading them? Who owns them? And like, what is sort of like the the ecosystem of guilt holders and traders? What does that look like in normal time from your perspective? 
So, yeah, I used to be global head of asset allocation at Columbia Threadneedle, which is a, a large investment firm. My team managed, what, about $160 billion across teams in four time zones. The UK, frankly, is a fairly small part of that global, hmm. uh, that, that global area. But I had quite a lot of contact because a, a fund I managed, I mean, it served as a growth fund for pension funds that were looking at liability-driven investment, oh. that sort of thing. So, so I had conversations with you know, uh, pension fund trustees and, uh, and, and consultants over the past sort of 10, 15 years to understand the kind of aims and ambitions that they have and how they're trying to implement these things. And in terms of the gilt market more generally, the gilt market is, I mean, the UK defined benefit pension system is just very large compared to the amount of fixed income out there. Right. I, wrote, I wrote a piece a few years ago, which I haven't revisited, which was looking at the amount of duration in uh, sterling denominated instruments and comparing it to the duration of defined benefit pension schemes. Like if they all wanted to just allocate to bonds, could they? No, is the answer. There simply isn't enough UK, or at least there wasn't enough UK duration for them to do that. They would have to take basis risk. They would have to go out and think of other strategies, use derivatives in order to try to get towards that kind of locked funding uh, ratio. I know we've been focused on pension funds for the most part, but in terms of those overlay strategies used to pump up leverage and therefore pump up returns, I mean, this was one of the suspicions about some of the big bond funds for the past 10 years or so. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular, (laughs) selling a, a lot of volatility, you know, taking on a lot of duration risk and things like that. How endemic are these overlay strategies to asset management in general? I don't think that they are particularly endemic. I mean, <laughs> beyond the largest portion of the UK asset management industry, which oh, is uh, which is the uh, liability-driven investment side. But I think it's really, really important because I realised you said at the beginning you can get really geeky. That's okay, and I have done <laughs> because I, you know, I'm part of your your audience. I listen to your podcast. I love it, and I think lots of you know, super geeky people do. No offence to the rest of the audience. No, we, <laughs> um, we, we geeks we unite. Geeks yeah. unite. <laughs> but um, the, one of the things which I which I'm seeing in the mainstream well, all across the mainstream press in in the UK is that leverage has been used to juice returns, to pump up returns. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what's going on here. What's really going on here is that there isn't enough UK fixed income duration. And it doesn't seem necessarily unreasonable to think about a recovery strategy for a UK pension scheme, which which uses synthetic duration to help you get there. What's been, I think, the, the lesson that will be taken away from here is that you need to have way larger cushions in place, sort of basis points to exhaustion, if you like, on your derivative platform in order to, to know with confidence you're going to be able to implement it properly. Or you're going to have to have a much more liquid portfolio, which flies in the face of everything the government's been trying to do over the past few years to try and incentivize pension schemes to invest in infrastructure or property mm. or you know, venture capital or all the sort of things that might help the country's growth profile. That's kind of like going to reverse now. I'm going to up the geek stakes now. Talk to us why there isn't enough supply of duration, because this is something that you hear in the U.S. as well. Although, you know, a lot of the commentary there is about the central bank having sucked duration out of the market by purchasing MBS and other bonds. So, yeah, I mean, I've had this conversation about, like, why isn't there more duration in the U.K. market for I mean, with various degrees of success, me trying to find the answer for the past 25 years. (laughs) I've spoken to, you know, uh, 
past heads of the management office, UK government, you know, different corporate treasurers. And the, the, where I've sort of got to on this is that actually, yeah, I, I would agree with the UK government that the UK government issues way longer than any other government. So the term structure of, of gilts is just hugely longer than any other G7 government in the world, or in fact, I think any government in the world. Mm. And that's partly trying to satisfy that thirst for duration at the same time as balance. A question which I didn't answer, sorry, earlier, Tracy, when you said, well, who, who else is in the market for gilts, right? So the shorter part, it's insurance funds. The longer part is all pension funds. The middle part is, is fairly sort of vacant, really. So yeah, the UK government already skews there in terms of uh, corporate bonds. Now, the corporate bond market in the UK is just really tiny. There isn't a huge amount of, of bond borrowing by uh, UK companies. And I, I was kind of thinking, well, why? I mean, they're sort of doing this through having an unfunded pension scheme. And then it sort of struck me, well, maybe maybe they've decided to, to do their long-dated corporate borrowing through an unfunded pension scheme <laughs> because the, the fees that go to the Pension Protection Fund, which is our version of the PBGC, might might actually be kind of lower than the aggregated, huh. you know, the, the the spread that you might pay. This is what I mean by Toby being both technical and philosophical at the same time. I like that. Well, you know, it sounds like if there's a shortage of duration, then the government should enact a budget that increases guilt issuance by 45 billion bucks. <laughs> Weren't they just trying to solve a basic problem there? <laughs> but in all seriousness, on that point, I mean, that's kind of a troll, but also not really. Like, what is it? What was it about that announcement, you think, yeah. that was so – like, this is what I'm still trying to wrap my head around. So triggering kind of I was for like, the market. Yeah, right. And why yeah. I was like trying to um, – you know, why I was asking about what were liquidity conditions yeah. in the days yeah. run up to it. What was it about the announcement that yeah, caused so, such violence in the market? So, I mean, I, I was watching the announcement with, with a bunch of fellow geeks uh, in a WhatsApp <laughs> group. And we were looking at it and going, oh, my God. Oh, wow. Uh, as, as, as he was sort of announcing these things. But if you'd have asked me before, you know, if, if I'd have been that guy who's pulled yeah. into number 11 saying, so here's what we're going to do. I'd go, oh, wow, that's, that's really, that's a bit of a shocker. If I was asked, like, what do you think the market's going to do? Yeah. I wouldn't have said what it did. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, I think that you can explain what happened. By, by two things. And this is kind of like, you know, it's, it was partly the substance. I think that's definitely part of it. But it was also the style. So, you know, I mean, the, the new Prime Minister Liz Truss and her chance, uh, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng came to power and the Queen immediately died. And so nothing happened at all. But they wanted to do stuff before Parliament sort of uh, went into recess. Now, they're pretty iconoclastic in their style. During the whole leadership campaign, the Prime Minister put the Bank of England mandate uh, into play. On the first day in the role, Kwasi Kwarteng sacked Tom Scholar, who was the most senior and respected official in the Treasury. From their perspective, he'd be proud of the establishment. He, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng announces that, that, that it will be a fiscal event and it wouldn't be a budget because, you know, the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, our version of the CBO, right. it has to look at budgets. It has to kind of put forecasts out. And it's like, you know, he, he didn't want his homework marked by them. Right. So all of these all of these sort of stylistic things come through and then you make a, a sort of a big sort of shocking you know, announcement, which is way bigger than anyone was was expecting. And the guild market seemed to you know, have, have a bit of a, a bit of a meltdown straight away as the Bank of England was already you know, hiking rates. And as you said at the start of the episode, rates around the world were already rising. And then over the weekend, you know, so Friday, 
the, the, the 23rd, that was the biggest move in yields in 35 years. A huge move. Amazing. So, and then so over the weekend, Kwasi Kwarteng's interviewed mm. and he doubles down. He's like, oh, we've got new unfunded tax cuts to add to this. Uh, and he's, <laughs> you know, he's jocular about it. So, so Monday, you have a bigger move <laughs> than you had on Friday. You know, the even bigger move in 35 years. The, the style is really important. You know, there's this kind of feel to markets, mm. which, which I think you, I, don't, I don't think it's like putting a slide rule and saying, you know, you do this measure, you get this number of basis points rise. It's, it's it, the, 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 the style is so important as well. And that's why I think that today in coming out and doing a, a major U-turn after everyone yeah. saying they weren't going to do it. I mean, the prime minister was on, was on national TV yesterday saying we're absolutely not going to U-turn. <laughs> this is absolutely, you know, what we're going to do. Yeah. Uh, and then they're in the middle of their annual party conference right now uh, to, to come out and Utah. I mean, that's a that's a big kind of like, OK, the style's over. You know, we're changing now. This was going to be my next question, actually. Um, you know, if it's more about the style and, you know, it, it really seems like there is a lack of a cohesive plan at this point. You can argue that maybe, you know, some aspects of it make sense. And I know Joe has been doing his share of this I, on Twitter. I didn't say it made sense. <laughs> but like after the U-turn, we have seen bond yields start to come down. We've seen sterling start to recover. Should that be the, the right interpretation of the market that like the problem is solved now it, it seems like if it's a problem of style and the uk government not really being sure what it's doing here then that kind of u-turn doesn't necessarily bode well i think the big important u-turn is on style but there is also a substance return for, for your listeners who are not in in the uk realm there was this idea of, of scrapping the top rate of income tax which is 45 percent on over 150,000 pounds. So you'd only, you know, the top rate would be you know, somewhat lower than that. Uh, that was only going to cost two billion pounds a year. I say only two billion pounds a year, but there we go. It's, it was a small part of that 45 billion package. But today they also said, right, well, we're going to freeze various other budgets and, and that will deliver 18 billion pounds of savings. So put those two together. <laughs> That's actually, a, uh, there's some substance there mm. as well. You know, the, the market was looking for around about 30 billion unfunded tax cuts. And that would be using up all the fiscal room from the previous OBR financial projection. And so it was it was a 35 up to 45. That was the element of surprise. And so the substance has been, you know, fully unwound in a way which I think a lot of people here will be, you know, horrified to find that public services, which are falling apart, are going to be impacted uh, as, as a way to, to kind of pay for some of the other unfunded tax cuts. And then that sort of chef's kiss of you know, tax cuts for the very richest is being removed. And that's very stylistic. You know, I'm looking at all these charts on my screen. And again, if you just sort of put a hand over on the screen over last week, you have a bunch of lines almost where they were before the tax cuts at this point. And I think it was you, though, and you've written like in the last week, I think like five or six blog posts and been a must follow on Twitter as always. But I think it was you that's saying something like, you can't. Did you say you, have the, you can't unburn toast? Was that your line? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, right. so what does it mean starting now here, like on October third, okay. when people yep. are thinking about, you know, we talk about, oh well, this move should only happen once every hundred trillion years or something. I, no one yep. said that, but like <laughs> now we've seen the move. We yep. now we've seen that it's possible, and now yep. that we can we can't unburn that we can't unsee it, even if I put my hand over the middle of the screen. So, what does it do for managers? And they're thinking about risks that such a moves are now proven to be possible. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So there's this huge kind of efficiency versus resilience sort of battle, right? 
And one of the things that the UK government was keen to do was to reform Solvency 2, which is a bunch of insurance regulations, so that they would need to have less capital, mm. dead capital, sitting at the sidelines just in case, you know, as part of resilience. Yeah. And, you know, what, what uh, they might well go through with that, and maybe that's even sort of sensible, but from a risk manager's perspective that's using, I mean, all risk models pretty much are fed with, with historical data of some description, mm -hmm. and this is now in the history. So you know, every stress test that the asset managers or investment banks use, which are kind of different, like you know, scenario stress tests, you'll have one which will be, you know, sort of UK has a bit of a meltdown as, as one of those sort of stress tests. And you'll need to make your portfolio survive that stress test from now on. If you have portfolio risk that you're looking at within your portfolio risk system, your portfolio might look a little bit riskier than it did because simply that historical data is feeding it. And so if you've got a risk budget that you're working to, you might need to take a little bit less uh, portfolio risk. I mean, that's it's it just kind of goes into the into the plumbing of risk systems on bank trading desks mm. and portfolio managers. And it'll fall out eventually, you know? I mean, th th these things tend to be like exponentially weighted. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll after a few years even, it'll, it'll kind of, you know, be a very modest thing, be more on a discrete scenario side. But this now exists on everyone's sort of blotter and it's going to inform decisions, whether people think about that consciously or whether it's just, you know, underneath. So this to me is the sort of big picture change that's happened over the past couple of weeks, which is this idea that we're all coming to grips with severe interest rate volatility. And we can see government bond yields that are usually assumed to be relatively stable move very quickly and very suddenly. And we've designed an entire financial system around the assumption that that doesn't happen very much. So we have a lot of bank capital rules, liquidity coverage rules, pension fund rules that tend to herd investors into these stable and ostensibly safe government bonds. And so when that doesn't happen, when they turn out to be really volatile, it becomes extremely painful and in some circumstances problematic. Is that like is that something you would agree with or how would we resolve that tension? The idea that, you know, most big investors are supposed to hold a whole bunch of government bonds. Right. But then, you know, we get a week like like last week and suddenly those government bonds turn into a, a liability. I should be careful about using liability when we're talking <laughs> about pension funds, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, no, I think I think you sum it up brilliantly. You're a fantastic communicator. I would just caveat that a little bit, just in, in sure. the spirit of geekiness, in that you know, for for pension funds, the long end is the risk-free asset, simply because that's where the liabilities sit. But you know, so on a, on an unlevered basis, you know, having a load, load more if there was enough duration would would be a would be a great great thing for them. I mean, they they would be able to close the funding ratio, and that's it. But because that market structure doesn't really facilitate that to happen, then yeah, that's going to be a problem. You know, just going back to earlier, Tracy asked like, well, how should we sort of conceptualize or categorize the BOE's intervention? Should it be considered QE or not? Or is it just some other kind of market operation? If gilts or government bonds are the, like by definition, are the definitional risk-free asset, then the, the central bank in any country can't just let them deviate too far. I mean, that people talk about a bailout, but yeah. essentially, like it sounds like they they just have to step in. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that. You you have to have a government curve. You know, without that, nothing else works. 
Right. Also, I mean, the the sort of striking thing is there's a lot of talk about central banks losing control of the long end of bond markets. But then, as you pointed out, when the BOE announced its intervention, it actually seems to have had more impact than it might have expected. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if people talk about losing control of the long end, it's not something that the, that the Bank of England would yeah. typically want to have any control of at all. They'd want market expectations to shape that. But getting into a doom loop is is, yeah. is going to be something which will cause systemic problems potentially. And so as a as, as a lender of last resort or market maker of last resort, you need to step in. So Toby, we're going to have to wind up our conversation now. But I, I guess just going back to the big picture of what's going on with the UK government and UK markets, what are you on the lookout for, for hmm. next steps or developments that might inform the future path? So I, I, I'm kind of on the pension fund side, I'm sort of thinking that a, a bunch of pension funds will unfortunately have lost their hedges. And so, you know, will they be coming back into the market to actually buy long-dated bonds in order to, you know, which could cause a real rally from here at the long end. Uh, some people I speak to in the market on the investment consulting side and hedge fund side, they're, they're sort of thinking, right, is there going to be some kind of stop loss um, safari that goes on? Because <laughs> That's a great because, term. <laughs> Because, you know, it, yeah. what, what was revealed during this whole debacle was that actually, if you push up long dated yields by 100 basis points, you can throw some of these structures into unwind. And so I think schemes are trying to manically make sure they're in a situation whereby once the Bank of England intervention ends, that that's not going to be possible anymore. So that's that's going to be very interesting to watch. All right. I love the idea of going on a stop-loss safari. Yeah, I we'll watch it, for that. It's not as fun as it sounds. All right, Toby Nangle, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Fantastic to talk with you as always. Thanks for having me. Great to speak to you again. Thank you. So it's been too long, Toby. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, 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 have you on, we'll have you on again soon to talk about how the stop-loss safari is going. But that was great. <laughs> Joe, I thought that was a fantastic conversation. And it did actually, I guess, help um, yes. in my mind crystallize some of the – there have been so many big ideas floating around based off of the price action that we've seen over the past week. Yeah, I just think it was very helpful just to get that distinction between liquidity versus solvency in the context yeah. of pensions. Because it's easy to sort of like have this crude – it's like, oh, the pensions, they have a lot of guilt. The value of the guilt's plunged. Oh, now they're insolvent. Actually, they're not insolvent uh, in large part because by the conventions of accounting, their obligations went down too. Mm -hmm. But this theme and the fact that we talked about it earlier in the year, like five months ago with commodity markets, we see how really fast moves in leveraged areas can create liquidity crises even when the fundamentals aren't so bad. Right. And this kind of gets to the central bank point that Toby was making as well, which is as as fun as it is or as bizarre as it is to watch a central bank that is ostensibly reducing its balance sheet and embarking on quantitative tightening actually go back into the market and start buying bonds. That's the role, right? Yes. Like that is the classic lender yes. of last resort. You see a liquidity issue like this, not a solvency issue, a liquidity issue. They're supposed to step in. This is really key. And I tend to think and this is where, you know, I, I 
get a little frustrated with some of the commentary because a central bank is part of the modern financial infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so I think people like to pretend that like, oh, like real capitalism or real markets is when the central bank is hands off and then, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But I think like, you know, part of this, uh, the central bank does exist. It's core to the system. And part of its role is to stabilize, especially the government bond market for very good reason. I don't think that per se means it's like, cheating or a bailout or I, I'm not I'm not convinced that these are like useful terms when describing the central bank playing its role. No, I think that's right. What I would say is it does seem like a very complicated place for the BOE yeah, to be in. And, for sure. you know, the idea that tomorrow we could wake up and the conservative government has an, made some new announcement or a new U-turn. Mm -hmm. Who knows? And the BOE is going to have to try to formulate the correct response to that. Like, that does seem tricky. I, I completely agree. And I, I would say there's two things. But mm -hmm. one is every central bank right now is in inflation fighting mode, right? Yep. None of them want to be using balance sheet policy. You know, they're all like a QT of some sort. And so the idea that like this is going to put QT on hold or that they might even have to expand their balance sheet, I think is an uncomfortable position to put in. Yeah. But what I would say also to your point about responding to policies and something could change tomorrow and there could be a new tax cut or two hike, uh, you know, tax hike or who, who knows? We have no idea. But what I would say is, you know, I think going back to this, it's like, can they respond on the inflation side of the mandate? Mm -hmm. So if there's more spending or more tax cuts, okay, we're going to have to hike rates to hit our target, hike rates further, while also with you know with the left hand, while with the right hand, making sure markets stay stable. It's a tricky situation. Well, this kind of goes back to the whole designing a financial system around yeah. government bonds thing as well. And I think it was Connor Sen had a, a great tweet about how, you know, it's not just the financial system, it's monetary policy as well. Like yeah. Monetary policy works through changing the price of government debt. So yeah. if you want to change employment or inflation, you're going to have to do something to the price of government debt, which makes everything a lot trickier at a time when, you know, people are really focused on interest rate volatility. Yeah. All right. We should leave it there because we could talk about this for another two hours, probably. Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Be sure to follow our guest, Toby Nangle. He's at Toby underscore N. Follow our producer of this episode, Dash Bennett. He's at Dashbot. And follow our other producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Armin. And if you're looking for even more discussion on the pound guilt and everything else going on in the British economy, definitely check out in the City. It's a new podcast from Bloomberg UK, and it's hosted by Francine Lacqua and David Merritt. It's covering all these finance stories straight from the heart of London. Thanks for listening. there. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.